0: Welcome to the Miller Odcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at missourireview.com. Hello, the internet. It's time for episode eight of the Odcast. I am, as usual, Martin McKee, Managing Editor of the Missouri Review, and I'm joined today by TMR's contest editor, Bailey Boyd, and our audio contest intern, Annalise Hatchex. Hi. Hello. This episode, we feature the first prose finalist for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize, Jared Green's Maps and Fires, adapted for audio by Tracy Bull and Niveden Singh, narrator and musician, respectively. Jared Green is a fiction writer, literary critic, and professor of English literature at Stonehill College. His poetry has appeared in Whackamont, Tiny Seed, Emergency Index, and the anthology, The Art of Living, forthcoming Poetos Press. And his fiction and critical writing have been published in numerous journals, including Gulf Coast, Quiddity, The Right Launch, New Limestone Review, and Kajubee. Let's go with Kajubee. He lives in Concord, Massachusetts. Tracy Bull is an illustrator and mother of three. She also happens to be the neighbor of the author and was honored to lend her voice to the narration of Maps and Fires. Nivedan Singh is a music producer, actor, director, and activist. His most recent work includes senior program direction with the national music education nonprofit, Notes for Notes, sound design for the award-winning Nashville Repertory Theater, and audio post-production for film music with his record label, Bedlam Sound. His short film, Neveden, an animated short, 2019, has been featured in academic conferences and educational programs throughout the US. He is the lead singer and founding member of the musical groups, *Sleepaway Camp and Sex Habits, in addition to self-titled solo releases. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Now Bailey, this is one of the first official finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. So we wanted to say just a couple of things about what drew us to the piece, what we love about it and what makes it a piece we particularly wanna recognize in the Miller podcast.
1: Yeah, Mark, um, I think this is really an interesting second finalist for us, especially after we highlighted Aaron McCoy's Woods last week, Um, because this piece is different in that um, it actually does have some external sound coming into the story rather than um, McCoy's woods that kind of almost generated it itself um, you know the the sounds here really are ways that the story is enhanced and it and, and they're surprising but it actually is used as like a tool almost and um, here particularly for character development, but also for plot and setting. And so it really helps for the story to come alive um, in each of those different aspects with the use of sound coming into it and kind of inflating the story. And and that's that's what I loved about the piece.
2: Yeah, I similarly, I felt like a lot of the, other sounds that were introduced created an entire kind of aural environment to the piece. Uh, I thought the story was full of twists and turns that are complemented by the auditory surprises. From the introduction of the second speaker to the songs woven throughout, I never knew what to expect. And that sense of this kind of um, sound environment also made me feel like I was kind of along for the ride on this road trip journey. Um, I felt like I was just right in the back seat of their green and rust Pontiac um, as they were driving through America's towns, leaving a trail of ash in their
0: wake. Yeah, I think I think both uh, what you both had to say has been really uh, illuminating. And I also found I couldn't I couldn't get away from, and pleasantly so, from um, the form of the story kind of broken into with the recurring song and the uh, changing lyrics. Like, it it put me in the mind of classic criminal road trip cinema like Terrence Malick's Badlands and Tony Scott's True Romance where there are musical cues that kind of fold events in uh, much like I think uh, sometimes country songs themselves where the the lure, the lure allure of the kind of the, the melody um, kind of covers for some of the darkness that is contained uh, and it all these things take on a much darker cast the longer that you listen or the more often that you listen. And this is certainly one to return to. Um, right, well, let's get out of it, out, out of, let's get out of the way so it can do its thing. Uh, thank you, Bailey and Annalise for being here.
1: Thanks, Mark. Thank you.
0: All right, Jared Green's Maps and Fires.
2: In Kansas City, Wade and Sydney drove to the center of town and danced across the state line. Wade in Kansas, Sydney in Missouri. Hello, hello, hello! They shouted, celebrating the dream of being in two places at once. They kissed each other here and there until midnight, when July turned into August and smashed bottles on the train tracks. The night sky was a sea of stars with a little black in between. In the morning, they got married Wade in his denim and Sydney in her calico. The only person there was the blind Justice of the Peace, who wore a pale blue leisure suit and mismatched shoes and didn't ask any questions other than the ones in the vows. They felt young and dangerous and beautiful, which they were, because all kids are, at least for a time. They packed their things in Wade's piebald green and rust Pontiac and left nothing but the trail of dust behind them. That night, just before they left Kansas forever, Wade put on his father's old cowboy hat strapped on his six-string guitar and set fire to the tumble-down roadside fruit stand, singing
3: Goodbye
2: He would record this one day, and it would be his first hit single. Of that much, they were certain. Sydney thought it had to be the most goddamn romantic thing she had ever heard. I ought to know, because she is me. That is, I'm the one called Sydney. We never told anyone where we were going or what we had in mind, because these were not things we knew ourselves. We traveled like two bull weevils in whiskey-drunk zigzags, visiting towns with the queerest names in America, just for grins. From Chicken Alaska to Two Egg Florida, all the time heading for Friendship Maine, because, said Wade, we were going to live like fishermen one day. Wade sang this as we crossed into Imagine Wisconsin. But we both knew I'd be doing the fishing because, let's be honest, Wade's no outdoorsman. But that part was in the future then. Before that, we were just us. Wade behind the wheel most of the time, one eye on the road and the other on me. Me, I was in charge of the radio dial and the maps. These were long days under baby blanket blue skies, every one of them a country song that hadn't yet been sung. I called out the route numbers and exits and judged miles with a wooden matchstick broken to exactly one inch. Everything made all the sense it had to. We slept in cheap motels and trailer parks and in the back seat of the car when we had to, which was usually. Where the people were nice, we stayed an extra day or two, collecting friends to come back and visit sometime. But most of all, we got it on absolutely everywhere. I marked each spot we made love on our maps by burning little holes in the paper with a cigarette. Each time I made a new hole, Wade sang a new hit song, such as... Until each state was nothing but ashes before we reached the border of the next. Wade insists it was me who gave him the idea to burn up real things along the way. But I don't think I deserve all the credit. Takes a certain kind of visionary to make an idea into a fact, and another kind entirely to turn that fact into a song. Lucky me, Wade's a renaissance man. I kept a list in the glove compartment of all the things Wade burned, and what the occasion was, just for our records. A flaking plaster big boy from a Bob's Big Boy in Uncertain Texas on the evening of the blue moon. A phoneless phone booth outside of Nothing, Arizona to celebrate our two-week anniversary. A pile of burst truck tires and orange crates on a median strip in Hell, Michigan, for the first day of autumn. Three dead elm trees outside of Intercourse, Pennsylvania, when we hit 3,000 miles. Looking over the unburnt maps that awaited us one morning, Wade said that all those twisty, winding roads looked just like tangled fuses, waiting for the right people to light them up and send the whole crazy rocket into the sky.
3: Those people are us, Sweet Pea, and we're gonna put on a hell of a show.
2: Like I said, he had vision. On the radio, Etta James sang, let's burn down the cornfield, and so we did. That day, I put five more holes in the map on the way to fertile Iowa. When the car broke down at Accident, Maryland, Wade burnt that too along with a couple of abandoned beach cabanas, because he said I looked like I was getting homesick. I wasn't anything of the sort, though. Truth is, I was just in a mood to be seduced, and you'll have to believe me when I tell you how good he looks by firelight. I suppose you might be thinking he's some kind of pyro, but that's not it. Wade wasn't criminal about it or nothing. He'd never set fire to anything live or lived in. This was just how he needed to express himself, just to show everybody that these two kids named Wade and Sidney had been through their town and were in some serious big-time love. Sometimes people need to be reminded what love looks like when it's true. I guess it was just a matter of time before folks saw a pattern and caught on. Soon they were building up great big heaps of things for us to burn if we should ever come through their towns. Pyramids of long chairs in Experiment, Georgia, phone books and railroad ties in Hazard, Nebraska, lifeguard watchtowers in Embarrass, Minnesota, and the like. Those that recognized us asked us for selfies and such, and who were we to deny our fans? I heard tell we made it big on the internet, but that wasn't any of our concern. Soon enough, we two were getting blamed for just about every kitchen fire in the country, and word was that the FBI were out looking for us, but we had disguises and a fistful of new names and a whole lot of license plates. Sometimes we'd stop in a place to eat or go bowling or wash our clothes, and there we'd be on the TV, being made an example of. Some called us the end of America, And some called us eco-terrorists. Some said we were anti-war protesters or Wall Street occupiers or social justice warriors or what have you. Some said we were just sinners in the hands of an angry God. I asked Wade what he thought we might be, and he sang it to me straight. That one was going to be big for sure. We were low key famous for a stretch, you could say. T shirts and action figures and a cartoon show and all. I heard the ashes of our burnt things sold in galleries in New York City and Los Angeles, but we never saw a dime. For a season, we were a Halloween costume. And when the noise died down, which it always will, when everybody moved on to the next thing, which they always do, we just went about our business, which was fine with me. Never wanted to be much of a celebrity anyway. Never wanted to be anybody's hero other than Wade's. It was right about near the end of it, not too far from Tightwad, Missouri, when we met Superman and Thumbelina, two perfectly strange strangers. They had just split from a carnival sideshow to Elope and were running from the owners with five grand of the carnival's money in their pockets. We agreed to give them a lift all the way to Mosquitoville, Vermont, where they were going to hide out on a commune special just for anarchist carnies. Lemon Yellow Tutu Thumbelina was barely three feet tall and rode a baby horse and told fortunes by feeling bumps on your head. Superman had a sunken face like a collapsing jack-o'-lantern and was pretty scrawny for the name, but he could hammer nails into his skull through his nose and eat honest-to-god light bulbs and suspend a cement block by chains connected to his nipple rings. He stripped down to just his red boots and dusty blue tights and showed us that this was true. Wade wrote a hit song about it, but it made me a little sick to my stomach, though I suppose that could have been because I was already six weeks pregnant without yet knowing it. That night, Wade gave them his demos and told them to put them in good hands because he had a vision that big changes were around the bend. Maybe good, maybe bad. Superman said, All right, all right, all right, because he knew a guy who knew a girl down in Nashville. They drew up a contract on the back of the Bickford's menu and then sealed the deal with soups homegrown while Thumbelina turned cartwheels around the telephone pole we had lit for the occasion. By the time we dropped off our carnies at the commune, driving the 1976 Gremlin that I had picked up in Hazard, Nebraska, for $100, Wade had been burning bigger and bigger things. An abandoned photomat in Whatshire, Iowa, a disused Pizza Hut in Marrowbone, Tennessee, a whole shuttered Bradley's in Why Not, North Carolina— for my 22nd birthday. Sometimes I threw a can of gasoline myself just to show him how strong I was feeling too. But can't nothing like that last forever, they say, and things have a way of taking their own direction anyway. When I think back on it, I wonder now and then if we made the right choices, but that just makes us like everybody, doesn't it? Besides, by the time I got to thinking about where it could all be going, there was only New Hampshire left, and we were bound to reach Maine and get domestic sometime. I will say, though, that the night we got here was the best fire ever. The last state map and a whole field of dried-up Jerusalem artichokes, burning chimney red and tangerine orange. Wade, I said, we're going to have a baby.
3: Well, hello, hello, sweet Pete, We're going to have us a baby.
2: And he wrote a brand new hit song and then took off all his clothes and threw them into the fire along with his guitar. I knew right then and there... Thought it to myself, even if things were never going to be the same, it didn't matter because the two of us were the realest thing in the world. Come what would or let it all burn down. And these quiet days, New Brunswick is nice enough and the people are pretty friendly once you get to know them. Things have changed a fair bit since the baby, I must admit. I bring her to work with me on the lobster boat and Wade's first album came out thanks to those carnies who only took producing credit, which is fair. It's a hit, like I always knew it was going to be. Sometimes I hear Wade on the radio and I think back. That hardly matters, though, the past and all, because we get by and we have our fun whenever we can. Wade's eyes are fixed on horizons far ahead, just like always. He keeps our house nice and cooks the meals and is strumming out a second album on his new guitar. He doesn't burn so many things anymore, except when he needs inspiration for a new hit song. He tried to quit it completely, even got down to just one piece of paper a day for a little while but once you've got something so beautiful as fire down in your soul, you can't ever really give it up. He says he doesn't want to influence the baby too much. She should have the chance to find her own thing without all the parental expectations. But I could tell who the little firefly took after from day one, because it was only the flicker from her daddy's lighter that could calm her down when she got colicky. And besides, even if he tries to keep quiet about it, I know how proud Wade's been since the baby started playing with matches. Lately... After dark, I've seen the silhouettes of the two of them, shouting with glee, Hello, hello! Hello, hello. Burning the baby's toys in the driveway.
0: Thanks for being with us on the Miller Oddcast number 8, featuring Jared Green's story, Maps and Fire, as adapted by Tracy Boll and Nevett Singh. Our thanks to all of them for the honor of publishing their work. Be sure to follow Jared on Instagram, Facebook, and at his website. Find more work from Tracy Bull at tracybull.com, and around Concord, Massachusetts, where she resides. As for Nibedin, more of his work can be found on the web. Check out the links in the podcast notes. Stay tuned for Miller Oddcast Number 9, coming soon. In the meantime, take heed. Submissions are now open for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. Learn all about it at our website. Thanks also to Missouri Review contest editor Bailey Boyd and TMR intern Annalise Hatchakis who join me for this podcast, and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Finally, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Subscribe or submit your work today. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.